0: We'll be in Genesis 6, but I want you to turn to Matthew 24. Would you open your Bibles to Matthew 24? We're going to look at the New Testament first this morning to set the stage. Matthew 24, verses 36 to 39. Then we'll flip back to Genesis 6. All right, Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus is saying, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came, and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. In context, the disciples ask Jesus about the signs of His second coming. And among many other things, Jesus says it will look like the days of Noah. The days we read about, or we had read to us in Jimmy's scripture reading. What were those days like in the days of Noah? First of all, there was rampant sexual perversion. If you saw in chapter 6 of Genesis, women were objectified, used as objects for sexual gratification. So it's marked by sexual perversion. It's marked by frivolous pleasure. Pleasure seekers. They're eating. They're overeating. They're drinking until drunkenness. Substance abuse. Just for enjoyment. It was a day marked by demonic possession. Demons possessing people and even governments corrupting them. It was a day marked by violent power. The author says that violence covered the earth. In the days of Noah. Men rose and fell by the sword. Do these things sound familiar? Is it reminiscent of perhaps the culture we live in today? Jesus said it will be like the days of Noah. Now, I don't bring that up so that we can start counting days or you know guessing what day the Lord will come back, because you saw in the passage, no one knows. It's a vain effort to try to guess what day the Lord is coming back, but Jesus gives that warning for his disciples and for us today so that we would be ready and that we would be holy. He doesn't want us to be consumed with the things of the world, the pleasures of the world, but he wants us to stand out and be set apart like Noah was. And he wants us to be alert that the world, as it corrupts around us, we remain faithful. And so there's good lessons for us to learn from the story of Noah and the flood so that we stay ready and we stay holy. Now you can turn back to Genesis chapter 6. And the whole account of Noah and the flood really, it's chapters 6 through 9, four chapters describing the flood event. And so do you remember uh, our approach through the study of Genesis is not to be in the trees looking at the details. We want to stay above the forest and see the the big picture. We're going to take it in a broad stroke. So we're going to cover all four chapters today. And and there's another theme that I want you to see, and it's going to make up our outline this morning in the story of Noah and the flood. It's an acronym. Uh, It's not mine. It was borrowed from my mentor, who probably borrowed it from somebody else. But it's S-J-R-P. You see it in your outline? S-J-R-P. This is a biblical pattern. You'll find it throughout the scriptures. It's an acronym that stands for this. Sin, judgment, redemption, and promise. Sin, judgment, redemption, and promise. We saw this in the fall, Genesis chapter 3. What was the sin? Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. What was their judgment? Well, among many other things, death, ultimately. What was the redemption in that? Well, there are several redemptive themes in there, but the redemption, one of them was that God came down and he covered their shame through a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. He gave them animal skins. What was the promise in Genesis 3? Well, it's the Proto-Evangelium. Genesis 3.15, God promised that there would be a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, that would defeat Satan and reverse the curse. See, we see that pattern in one event, the fall, SJRP. It's also, I want you to know, that it is a gospel pattern. SJRP. It's helpful when trying to explain the gospel to somebody. In fact, let's go to the Romans Road. You might be familiar with the approach of sharing the gospel called the Romans Road. You go through the book of Romans. Let's start with sin. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then J, judgment. What's the judgment? Well, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is what? Death. Where's the redemption? Where's salvation come from? How about Romans 5.8? But God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what's the promise? The promise comes in Romans chapter 10 that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God is risen from the dead, you will promise be saved. Do you believe the gospel? Do you see the pattern? S-J-R-P. So we see this pattern throughout Scripture. It's a gospel pattern and I think we see this pattern in the flood account as well. So that, that makes up our outline today. The first point is sin. Let's look at the sinful state in the days of Noah. Uh, It's pretty simple just to put a a broad stroke on this day and say that the days of Noah were bad. Safe to say, they were pretty bad. Chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The wickedness of man was great on the earth. Chapter 6, verse 11 says, The earth was corrupt, and the earth was filled with violence. And then verse 12, the next verse, it says, all flesh, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Pretty bad. So bad, in fact, that the sons of God were objectifying women, having sexual relations with them, and producing giants called the Nephilim. Now, I know some of you today were so excited to hear about the Nephilim. You're like, I've been listening to podcasts, okay, and I'm I'm ready to see what Pastor Morgan has to say about these half-beasts, half-man creatures, whatever they might be. Um, Well, remember our approach, though. We're not going to get into the trees. We're going to stay above the forest. And so I do have a a conviction on what I believe the Nephilim to be, but we're not going to go there today because we want to see the big picture, and that would distract us. We don't want to get caught in rabbit holes. But if you're curious, you can ask me afterwards, or you can ask, Pastor Thomas, too. And he'd be excited to share that with you, his opinion. (laughs) There are three truths about sin that I want you to see, though. Three big truths that we need to see in Genesis chapter 6. First of all, sin is pervasive. Sin is pervasive. It affects everyone and everything. Notice the language of verse 12. It says, not some flesh, Not most of the flesh on the earth. It says all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. No descendant of Adam is exempt from the curse of sin. And friends, that includes you and I today. Sin is so pervasive that it touches us. It infects us. And it infects and touches The people that we interact with in life. We see the effects of sin in our relationships, at our workplace, in the day-to-day. You're aware of this. You know. Your conscience bears witness. You have the infection, the curse. You're a sinner. It's pervasive. We all have this dreadful, sinful nature. We all have this problem. It touches all of our lives. So sin is pervasive, that's how wide it spreads, but how deep does it go? That's the second point. Sin is corruption to the core. Sin is corruption to the core. How bad am I? Look at what God sees in Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually You might think to yourself but I thought I was basically good. I thought I was a good person. Is that your idea of yourself? Is that the human ideal? The message today from a lot of pastors, preachers, you're basically a good person. You just got to tap into your good side. You got to find the goodness within you. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what God sees in us? That we're basically good? In addition to this verse, we have other verses in the Bible that would say otherwise. Psalm 14.3 says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah 53.6 All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. Romans chapter 3. It's like the nail in the coffin. It says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So are we basically good? Or are we corrupt to the core? I think the Bible teaches the latter. It's called depravity. Not only is there no good in us, but there's no hope within ourselves to fix it. We can't. We're corrupt to the very core. Sin is like a terminal cancer. Corrupted cells multiply, they metastasize at a rate that cannot be stopped or reversed by human effort. It's a disease that invades our inner being, and the corruption comes out in every aspect of our lives. It it touches not only the things that we do or the things that we say, but our thoughts, our attitudes, our motives have been corrupted by sin. They are, as the text says, only evil continually. That's how deep sin goes in your heart. That's how bad it is in your life. Mine too. We are corrupt to the core. Are you convinced of your corruption? Have you recognized and confessed before God that you're, you're absolutely hopeless and helpless if left to yourself in your sins? Sin is corruption to the core. Sin is pervasive. It's corruption to the core. And third, you need to see in this passage that sin breaks God's heart. Look at verse 5. Again, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, pause. Before we go to the next verse, God is about to become vulnerable. He's going to open up his heart to us and share with us how he feels about our sinfulness. And this is the first time in Scripture that God does this. He opens up and shares. We see a window into his heart to see, how does God feel about my sinfulness? Look at verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he made man... On the earth, he feels regret. You know, another word that uh, regret could be translated to. He felt sorry. It wasn't the the pithy sorry that your your kids say sorry when they punch their sibling or <laughs> spill their water. This is deep sorrow, true regret, remorse. It communicates a change of mind or a change of emotion. We know the Lord doesn't change his plans, that God's character doesn't change, but we do see his emotions change in response to man's decisions. Some of you might picture God as emotionally detached from you. He's kind of like the sociopath in the sky, just making decisions like a robot for mankind. You need to know God feels. Scripture does not describe God as emotionally detached. He feels. God weeps. We saw that in Christ. God rages against sin. God rejoices when sinners come to salvation. God sympathizes with the weak. He feels. At an emotional level, you and I couldn't even fathom to understand. It's never contrary to his character. It's not ever out of his control, but he feels. And how does he feel about sin? The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That is the pain of heartbreak right there. That's what that word grief is. Sin isn't just breaking God's law. It breaks his heart. Try to think of an illustration to describe this so that we would have a sense of this. And this illustration falls short, but I think it'll be helpful. Imagine you're on the road and you run a red light. Sure enough, the officer's right there. Sirens go on. He's got you. You pull over. You know you're guilty. You broke the law. So what do you do? You reach for your license and registration. You get that ready. You roll down the window. You're just ready for what's coming. The officer comes to your window, and you you notice that he's real somber. He won't even look you in the eye. He says, license and registration, please. Okay. You give it to him. You know you're guilty. He walks away. Five minutes go by. A little bit more than five minutes, you're like, huh, it shouldn't take that long. It's a pretty simple, you know, misdemeanor, and it doesn't take that long to ride a ticket. You look in the rearview mirror, and the officer is bent over his car, and he's weeping. What in the world? <laughs> what did I do to offend this guy? What, what went wrong in his day? He comes slowly, finally, back to the window, He hands you the license, the registration, and a ticket. And there's tears rolling down his cheeks. Eyes are swollen. He says, you know, you need to pay better attention to those lights. It's a matter of life or death. You say, I I apologize, Mr. Officer, but is something else wrong? He tells you, just last week, a man read, ran a red light and he killed my sister. Pay attention to the lights. And he walks away. Now, I will. if you're a human, you're driving away from that interaction a changed person. You're going to think twice before running another red light. That affects you because that law was not just a law that was written somewhere, but it was was personal. You didn't just break a law, but you broke a man's heart. You, You brought back a memory, a visceral memory of loss, of heartache. It's no longer a law anymore. Christian, that's how you should think about sin. You need to remember that as you go about living your life, and that when you fall short, when you fail, you need to remember that sin is not just breaking the law, it's breaking your God and your Savior's heart. It's not just another red mark on your quiz or your test. It's another stripe on your Savior's back that He paid for. Let that motivate you away from sin. Let that reminder be in your head when the decision's before you. You know, I can retaliate right now in anger and strike back, or I can be humble. I can do what Christ asked me to do. I can love my enemy, count others as more significant than myself. I'm going to choose to obey because I don't want to sin and break my God and Savior's heart. Sin isn't just breaking God's law. It breaks His heart. And let me tell you something. If you don't feel that, if it doesn't matter to you, if your conscience is so seared that when you sin and you keep on sinning, you don't feel anything, no remorse, no regret. I, you, listen, you need to ask yourself, seriously, do you know Christ? Do you know God? Because that is not a marker of a child of God. A child of God feels remorse and regret over the thing that God feels remorse and regret over. You will be sorry, poor in spirit, that you have sinned against a holy God. And if you feel that sorrow, not just that you were caught in your sin, not sorry because of the consequences you have to go through, but sorry because God is sorry about your sin. Sorry because you have hurt and broken your God's heart. Well, then that's a a good sign that you do have a relationship with Him. That you do... Walk with Him. And sometimes we need that reminder, Christian. It isn't just a religious duty or a game that we're playing. We have a relationship with God and that when we sin, it's more than breaking a rule. It's breaking His heart. So those are the three things that you need to see from Genesis 6, that sin is pervasive, sin is corruption to the core, and sin breaks God's heart. God takes sin seriously. So seriously that he wiped out the entire world because of it. That's point number two: judgment. There are consequences to sin when the judgment or sorry, when the whole world is corrupt, then the whole world will experience catastrophe. Genesis 6:13, God said to Noah, "I have determined." To make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. Genesis 7, four. Every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. How seriously does God take sin? Very seriously. Now, when deciding whether the flood was a historical event or not, many will rush to secular science to verify. According to Psalm 14, you're looking to fools for the answer. Because the fool says in their heart, there is no God. Let's look at the Bible to give us the answers. And the Bible could not be more clear that the flood was a historical event. You read the account, how many times does the author link the events to uh, actual days and years? There are so many numbers in here, not just in the dimensions of the ark, but on this day of Noah's life. On this year of Noah's life, this is when this happened. This many days it rained. This many days it flooded. This is how many days it took the flood to subside. This is how old Noah was at the end of the flood. What's the author trying to communicate? This is historical. This happened. And not only was it a historical event, but the flood was not local. The Bible could not be more clear. It was worldwide. Look at verse 19, chapter 7, verse 19. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole of heaven were covered. That's every mountain from Whitney to Everest, from the mountains of Nepal to the mountains of China to the mountains in Alaska. All were covered. How deep? Verse 20 the waters prevailed above those mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. God was thorough. Everything's covered. Total worldwide flood. And the flood did not have some casualties. The flood was eight people short of total annihilation. Look at chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. God was thorough in his judgment. Chapter 7, verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. It's like he's trying to make a point here. He blotted out every living creature that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. How many times did he have to say it? They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him. In the ark. Is God thorough? Does God look over sin? Does he sweep it under the rug? Did some people slip through the cracks? Make it on a, I don't know, by treading water? Maybe some water polo players could have maybe tread water for for 120 days. Nope. God is clear. Every living thing, except for those on the ark, perished. Perished. Every living thing. Was God just to do that? Yes, he was. God is holy. And mankind had corrupted themselves. Their corruption was so bad, in fact, that it touched every living creature. God would have been justified to annihilate the whole world and completely start over. But he doesn't. Why? Do you remember what promise he made last week? Genesis 3, that the offspring of the woman would produce a seed that would crush the serpent's head. Do you see how the, the Bible stories come together? Just short of that promise, God could have totally wiped out the earth and restarted, but he didn't. According to his plan, he saves some. He redeems Noah and his family, and in so doing, he keeps his promise. But you need to know that sin has consequences and that they're serious. And that without the saving grace of God, without redemption in Jesus Christ, you and me today, if you don't have that, then there's a flood awaiting you. Not on this earth, but in eternity in in the lake of fire. There's judgment waiting for those who do not repent and believe in Jesus Christ, the atoning Savior. So let's look at the third point, redemption. We see great redemption in this story. Noah was told to build a boat And it was a big boat. Noah and his family, along with two of every kind of earth and flying animal, they were saved from judgment by this boat, the ark. And it's fascinating to read the dimensions and imagine how this might have looked and how all those animals could have fit. And again, we don't want to get caught in the trees. We want to stay above the forest. But I would encourage you to check out some resources online. Uh, Answers in Genesis is a great online resource to talk about the days of the flood and creation. Also, you could visit the Ark Encounter, which some of you have visited, and it's a real-life replica of the Ark. So anyways, if you're curious. But what's important for us to see, the big picture here, is that despite man's wickedness, God saves, and he provides a way to escape the wrath that comes. And this points forward to the ultimate savior, There's a relationship between the ark and the redemption and God and Jesus Christ and his salvation to us. The ultimate way of salvation is through Christ. And Peter makes this comparison in 1 Peter 3. See, just as Noah and his family were safely immersed into the ark, the ark bore the brunt of the waves. It passed over the floods of judgment, and it brought the family safely through the waters to shore. Just as that was, listen, Christians, we are immersed into Jesus Christ. We are baptized in Him. Peter makes this comparison. He bears the full force of God's wrath. He takes us through the waters of God's judgment in His death for sinners. And He brings us safely to heaven's shore through His glorious resurrection. Praise God. We see a, a shadow of Christ through this picture of the ark and the salvation it brought. And you've got to listen here. Just as there's no other boat, there was no other way of escape in Noah's day than that ark. Listen. There's no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ, the only Savior. The way, the truth, and the life. You're not going to get there by being a good person. No one is good. No, not one. There's not a amount of good works that you can do to earn your way, earn your way onto that ark, earn your way onto that boat. You must be saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for salvation to the glory of God alone. And we see that in this passage. You've got to ask yourself, are you in the boat? Are you in Jesus Christ this morning? If not, Repent of your sins and believe in him today. I ask myself, what was so special about Noah? What was so special about Noah? Was Noah exempt from the list of people that, you know, every one of their thoughts was only evil continually? Was Noah without sin? No. Noah was just as corrupt as they were. He had been touched by sin. Sin's pervasive, it corrupts all of us to the core. Sin had. God, Noah had broken God's heart through his sin, but what was different about Noah? Why was he saved? There's such a great statement in chapter 6, verse 8. Look at it in your Bible. This is so sweet. Why was Noah saved? Very simple phrase, chapter 6, verse 8. After describing the corruption of the earth, there's a simple sentence. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know another translation for that word favor? Noah found grace. Wow. You know what was different about Noah than the wicked world around him? Not anything good in Noah, not any good works that he did. Noah found grace. God's grace. What makes you a Christian? Why are some of you a Christian here? Not because of your works. Not because of anything you've done to earn it. Guess what? You found grace. We found grace. God looked down upon us and instead of justly condemning us to death and hell, He gives us grace. He shows us mercy by providing for us a way of salvation, not by works. How do we receive this gift? Just by faith. By faith. Noah found the grace that's talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Noah found that grace. Noah was saved by faith. The same faith that we have. Noah was an heir of righteousness according to faith. Hebrews 11.6 Noah was a saved man. And he was a saved man the same way you and I are today. It's by grace through faith. Not of your works. It's a gift of God so that no person can boast. Isn't that amazing? By grace alone through faith alone. Now, there was evidence of Noah's saving faith in the fruit that he produced. As Martin Luther says, Noah was saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that was alone. Noah produced good fruit in his life. And we see it in the text. We look at chapter 6, verse 9. We see that Noah was a righteous man. Not righteous by his own effort. Righteous by faith. That word righteous means that it encompassed the whole person. Noah was righteous in the private places. And Noah was righteous in the public places. He bore righteous fruit in the workplace and at home. It says also that Noah was blameless in his generation. Noah was set apart from the wicked world. He was known as a man of, man of God. He did not blend in with the world and its pleasure seeking. He lived in the world, but he was not of it. He was blameless. And then it also says, look at verse 9, Noah walked with God. Noah's faith wasn't just a religious practice. It was a relationship. He walked with his Lord. He did not miss the morning prayer and talks with the Almighty. But don't be mistaken. Noah didn't just see God as a friend, but he saw God as his Lord and as King, and he obeyed Him. He obeyed all that God commanded him. Chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 9, Verse 16, Noah did as God commanded him. Noah obeyed. His faith produced good fruit of righteous deeds, of holiness, of devotion to God and obedience. Is that fruit apparent in your life today? Do you bear that good fruit? The fruit of faith? Saving faith? Are you known in the community, in the workplace, in the home as a blameless man? Or a blameless woman? Not dabbling with the things of the world. Not indulging in the pleasures of the world. But set apart, holy, as God's chosen ones. Do you walk with God daily as Noah and Enoch does? Do you have a relationship with God? A relationship that manifests in in regular reading of His Word, listening to what His Word says, and, and talking to Him through prayer. Do you do that daily? Are you a person that walks with God? Or do you listen more to podcasts, YouTube, radio, TV shows? Are you marked as a person who walks with your smartphone, not walks with God? Do you obey God's word totally and completely, just as Noah did, every command? Or do you stick to the commands that are easier? A little bit more comfortable. Doesn't cost as much from me. How about these commands from our Lord Jesus? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Do not be ashamed of the gospel from Paul. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see God from the author of Hebrews. How about from Jesus? If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Do you obey those commands? How about posting those above your kitchen or putting those on your mirror in the room so that you see them and are reminded of them before you go off on your day? Do you obey all that God has commanded you? Noah did. And this, again, is just evidence of his, of his faith. It wasn't his good works that saved Noah. He just found favor in God's sight. He was saved by faith through grace, and he manifests good works. Noah was redeemed, and so was his family. God is a saving God. Finally, the promise. The last part. The promise. Here's the final section of the pattern God is a God who promises, and he keeps his promises. Look at verse. If you go to chapter 9, after the flood waters have subsided, and uh, Noah lands safely on Mount Ararat. And his family comes out of the ark. God makes a covenant with Noah. It says, in chapter 9, verse 9, God says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. Now that word covenant is a very important word in the Bible. Covenants are important. Let me first define it. Covenant is a relational and binding agreement between parties. It is both relational and binding. So it's like a contract, but it's a little bit more than a contract, as you would understand it. It involves a relationship, a defined relationship. But it is binding between parties. And the covenants are so important in Scripture. If you want to make sense of the Bible, if you want to put the stories of the Old Testament together, arrange them, and and have an idea of the arc of redemptive history, then you have to know the covenants. The covenant, it's been said, the covenants are the backbone on which the whole Bible uh, rests and all the stories of the Bible. They are huge links in the chain, if you will, of redemptive history. And this is the first explicit covenant in Scripture the Noahic covenant, it's called. And being the first, it sets a precedent for the others. In fact, when God makes other covenants, he often references back to this one. And essentially says, hey, listen, if I've kept my promises since the very first covenant, then don't you think I'm going to keep my promises today in this covenant? So this is a big covenant. This is a big promise from God. And covenants manifest God's faithful love. His hesed that Hebrew word, faithful love is manifest in his covenants. Now, there are two types of covenants, okay, just briefly. There are unilateral and bilateral. Unilateral and bilateral. Unilateral, as it sounds like, is just a one-way covenant. In other words, one party takes the full responsibility of the agreement without any conditions on the other party. That's a unilateral covenant. It's like a promise, one way. I'm taking full responsibility for the agreement. You don't have to do nothing. Keeping my promises regardless. That's a unilateral covenant. The bilateral covenant is a two-way covenant. So there are terms for both parties. Both parties need to do something to meet the agreement. Now, all covenants in Scripture are unilateral, except for one. That's the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic is bilateral. Terms for both parties. But that means, listen to this, for every other covenant in Scripture... God makes the promise, makes the agreement, and he takes it upon himself to fulfill it unconditionally. You and I don't have to do anything for God to keep these promises. And God emphasizes that in this chapter. You see it. He says multiple times, I establish my covenant with you. And there's no terms except for the terms that God takes upon himself. I establish my covenant with you. This is a covenant, a sign of the covenant that I make between me, you, and the other living creatures. And I'm thankful that God makes unilateral covenants and that his covenant with us, the new covenant believers, is unilateral. Meaning that we can do nothing to mess it up. That we've got the promises coming to us by God's grace unconditionally. And I'm thankful that this covenant is unilateral, by the way, because I have a feeling that if it was bilateral, we would have messed this up a long time ago and the world would be covered in water again. We're talking like, you know, 5000 BC, messed up way back there. We may not even be here today if this is a bilateral covenant, but God keeps the terms upon Himself. He takes full responsibility. I'm thankful because He is the Elohim, the all powerful, the all wise God. I'm thankful my life is in His hands and not my own. Aren't you? So let's look at this covenant briefly. Who are the parties? Who are the parties in this agreement? Look at Genesis 9.9. 9. God says, I, there's the first party, God, establish my covenant with you. Who's the direct reference? Noah. God, Noah, and Noah, your offspring. Your descendants. After you. And, here's another party. Every living creature that is with you. You know, the animals are thankful that this is unilateral too. We would have messed it up for them. So they're a part of this. The whole uh, animal kingdom is included in this covenant. This is a promise from God to all of us. Now, what is the agreement that God makes and takes full responsibility for? Look at verse 11. He makes this promise. Never again, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God will never again destroy the earth by flood. This is an agreement to preserve life. And that's really good news. Because the promise made in Genesis 3.15 demands that human life is preserved. Right? Because there's a seed of the woman still coming. And so, God, in making this Noahic covenant, is, in a sense, allowing that previous promise to still come to pass. He's preserving the human race. He's not crinkling the world up into a ball and throwing it in the trash, even though he would be just to do that. But he promises to preserve life so that the rest of his promises can be brought to fruition. That's amazing. It's amazing. And what is the sign of this agreement? Look at chapter 9, verse 13. God gives a sign. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Verses 14 to 15, When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant as between me, you, and every living creature of all flesh. The rainbow is not a symbol for sexual diversity. The world has just ruined that, perversed it. Um, And there's stronger words I can use, but I will not. But every time we see a rainbow, listen, we should not be reminded of that. We should remember that God is a promise keeper, that He remembers His promise. And we need to cling to the promises of God. Believers, we need to cling to the promises of God. Promises like, my grace is sufficient for you. Every day. Promises like, I am with you and I'll never leave you. Promises like, I will give you rest for your soul. Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. Promises like, I am coming soon. And blessed are you if you keep the words of this book. These are the promises that need to be branded to our heart that we need every day to live the Christian life in this corrupt world. We need to remember the signs of God's promises to us and cling to those. Not the promises of prosperity, of health, wealth, and all that garbage that other preachers preach. Cling to the true promises of God's Word. The promises that will hold you fast to His salvation no matter how bad the world gets. Those are promises that you can bank on. You know why? Because you still see that bow in the sky. When it rains, even when your darn sprinkler system comes on, you see the bow. (laughs) Praise God. God keeps His promises. That's what you need to take away from the story of Noah. Four truths, just in closing, that Noah and the flood teach us. First of all, you're more corrupt in sin than you're aware of. Second, God is more serious about sin than you could imagine. Yet three, God is more gracious to save us than we could ever dream. And four, there's more hope in God's promises than anything or anyone else in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are always good. And we as foolish humans forget it. We get caught up in the little worries and concerns of our life, and we forget the big picture. The big picture is that you are holy. You are righteous. We're sinners, corrupt to the core. We've not only broken your law, but we've broken your heart. We deserve judgment. We deserve death, just like everybody else in the days of the Noah. Yet by Your grace, and only by Your grace, You have provided us a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank You, because we could have never done it ourselves. And in Christ, we are brought through the floods of Your judgment, because He bore the pain and the penalty for our sin that we didn't bear. And we're brought into newness of life. We're brought to heaven's shore one day when we die. We won't go to eternal judgment that we deserve, but we will be face to face in Your presence for eternity, those who believe, those who believe by faith. God, and we cling desperately to your promises because it's all we have in a day that's corrupt and getting worse. Remind us of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.